Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast by Mediaite that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week I'm joined by Ari Melber. He's the anchor of 6pm MSNBC show The Beat, as well as the network's chief legal analyst. I called him up to discuss the legal stakes of the upcoming presidential election, cable news coverage of the Trump administration, how cell phones are pushing civil rights forward, what criminal justice would look like under a Biden-Harris administration, and, because he's Ari Melber, rap music. Hey, Ari, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. You are the anchor of The Beat, uh, which is a very popular show in the 6 p.m. hour of MSNBC. Your background is that of a lawyer and a legal analyst, uh, but one of the very unique parts of your show is how much you incorporate music, specifically rap, uh, into the programming, from dropping lyrics mid-segment to having rappers on the show as guests. That brings me to my first question, which is when the pandemic is over and concerts are back, what is the first show that you're going to? Oh, that's a great question, man. Um, <laughs> Big, Big Sean's got a new album that I think is really great. I'd love to see him. And sometimes people with new, new work are out there. Vic Mensa is a really interesting Chicago artist who also is very socially conscious and political. I'd love to catch him. Uh, Tiana Taylor has a new album simply called The Album love to get her so love to get to her show so there's there's just so many great artists right now and there's been you know in within this tough year in so many ways there's been new music and culture coming out still you know yeah and i i have to say there's been a huge amount of albums just being released that from artists that you wouldn't have expected to drop an album this year i think because you know what they're not touring like those three artists you just mentioned i didn't even know they had albums out i'm still listening to tiana taylor's last album there you go (laughs) Uh, so I want to talk about the election. It's in less than two months. Uh, we're currently in the middle of a pandemic. There is a, a legal battle has already begun between, you know, the, on the Trump side, you have the president sowing doubt about the integrity of the mail voting process. And now the Biden campaign has assembled a what they're calling a legal war room to help in the fight to protect voting. From where I'm looking, it sounds like the election's going to be a bit of a mess, at least on election night. From a legal standpoint, what do you think we can expect on November 3rd and in the weeks that follow it? The most important thing is that the calendar for the election is in weeks, not hours. There is nothing wrong with it taking time to count the votes, whether they show Donald Trump's reelection or Joe Biden's election or something else. That is normal, and in our history, for those who like to to look at precedent, which lawyers do, or originalism, which many conservatives uh, support, the idea that you look to what did the Constitution mean at the time it was written, you could go back to years where it took a long time. That's why the calendar is slow, and society and life used to be slower with less technology. So that's the most important thing first. Uh, If it's a close race, you may go to bed that night without a clear winner, legally and you may wake up a week later and you could still be counting and that's okay. Uh, What's not okay, I think as a nonpartisan objective point is voter suppression or interfering with people's right to vote. Obviously that's illegal, it's wrong, it's undemocratic. uh, And we have a history of that in this country, including obviously along dimensions of of race and racist crackdowns on, on voting in the Jim Crow South. So that is i think something that historically hangs over this and that also is very important people have a right to vote um, you don't necessarily have the right to vote however you want because different states 
manage that. So the Trump administration is using its legal rights to try to challenge or narrow that in some places. They can do that, meaning maybe it shouldn't be such a long period of time to do mail-in voting or they want to really litigate that. That's allowed. Um, but what's not allowed is messing with the core right to vote itself. Do you see in what the Trump administration is doing, or at least you know the Trump campaign is doing, do you see that as echoing previous attempts in the country's history to make it harder for people to vote? Yes. I think the president has clearly publicly said that he wants to discriminate voting access in a way that helps him. And as with so many things that the president, this president does, that's a larger admission than most candidates ever make. So if in the back rooms there are those calculations, rarely are they admitted to because they look bad. So the president's talked about that in, in the realm of political discrimination, like he's more critical of it being basically easy to vote or vote by mail in places where he's afraid he's going to lose. And he said that bluntly. Uh, and he's now talked about maybe you vote twice to test the system, which is wrong. And local officials, including in both parties, said don't do that. Um, so our job as journalists is not to presuppose the best or worst of any candidate or any party. But yes, I can accurately report to the public that this president's gone farther than most. Yeah, I, th I think you make a good point there that he really has been just saying this stuff out loud. Um, you know, I, I have no doubt that previous presidents would have liked for less people to be voting in certain states uh, that, you know, may not swing for them. But for, for a president to come out and, you know, repeatedly uh, basically assault the concept of mail voting as just naturally uh, subject to fraud is is pretty unprecedented for, for a president. Do, do you think that that the Attorney General, William Barr, is a positive force in, I suppose, reining in those impulses from the administration? Or is he more of an enabler when it comes to uh, the access to voting? In his first stint as Attorney General, Bill Barr was seen as a conservative but mainstream respectable figure in the Bush administration. In this administration, he has proved controversial to the point that, you know, his former colleagues like Donald Ayers, who is a senior DOJ official under Bush, um, have said he shouldn't be in the job. He should be out because he's disgraced uh, the independence of the DOJ. Uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners know, because they follow the news, thousands of DOJ veterans uh, have called on him to resign, people with his stints in both parties, over the blatant meddling in cases involving Trump aides, in his obvious statements that can't be true, which is a nice way of saying he's misleading people. Uh, for example, you don't need to be as talented a lawyer as Mr. Barr to understand that voting is once per person, not twice or thrice. And he went on TV news and said, well, he's not sure, and maybe you could vote twice, because that was his best effort, apparently, at trying to avoid publicly contradicting his boss. But as the attorney general, unlike, say, a campaign official, you have an obligation to contradict your boss at times when they're wrong because the law comes first. So I think there's evidence where he has clearly failed that publicly. I, I want to talk about cable news a little bit. Uh, I think there's a sense that CNN and MSNBC have gotten more opinionated, uh, at the very least more strident in their coverage of the Trump administration. He's regularly called a, a liar or racist on air. Uh, regardless of the merits of those charges, that's not language that you've that's previously been leveled against uh, presidents by straight news anchors. Do you think cable news has changed 
in the Trump era in the way that it covers a presidential administration? And is that change justified? I think Donald Trump has been caught making false statements or lying more than any politician in American history by the nonpartisan fact checkers. And the Woodward scandal shows him knowingly doing it, which is in court, the difference between stating a falsehood, which you might correct or make a mistake, and stating a lie. When you do it in court, for example, it's perjury and it's illegal. Um, when politicians do it, it's, it's allowed legally, uh, but it's very serious. And so I do think that's posed challenges for journalists because if you use, for example, a frame that when you get information from, say, the Labor Department about job statistics, there's a level of credibility that you assign to it. And while you fact check and you do your homework and you bring skepticism, I think it's fair to say that most journalists take those labor statistics at face value and report them as what the government says, so the audience knows the source, and basically true. I mean, that's been the deferential model. And that is sometimes used with certain political statements as well. And here that has really been reversed because of the president's approach. So I think that, yes, there needs to be an adjustment on that, which is about facts. The wider question of whether certain people are being more forthcoming in uh, their views of it, whether you call that analysis, opinion, insights, personal experience, because people know things from serving in government, you know, I can leave it to others to do a macro analysis. And folks might say, well, what's my view worth anyway? Because I'm inside it, right? So I might not be as potentially independent as those at a distance. Um, but there's probably been a reckoning in both. And on truth, it's very important that we update according to the factual challenges we're facing as journalists. I think that's well understood now as we're, you know, near the end of at least the, the first term. Yeah, you know, I think there's, there's often been a debate in media, and this is something that you see play out at the Times, the New York Times a lot, where, you know, you can have a, 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 a politician who has said, you know, a, a certain amount of falsehoods or misleading statements. At what point do those add up for you to be able to say that the president is a liar in a headline or on air? And I think a lot of people have made the decision that, you know, when you look at the Washington Post fact checker, which has the president at 20,000 misleading or false claims, a lot of people have concluded that, that once you get to 20,000 in a single administration, that that, is, that meets the threshold. Um, I will say that not, Every cable news network has concluded that. Fox News uh, would probably, many of the hosts on Fox News would reject that idea. Um, do you watch the competition at all, uh, either Fox News or CNN? I read a lot of primary source information and articles and investigative coverage. And then I talk to sources. And then in addition, I definitely keep an eye on what's on TV news. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm fixated on it. And with when you say the competition, when I'm out on air, I can't usually see the other uh, channels during that hour. And I don't usually go back and watch them on tape. So you're not the biggest cable news watcher. Would that be fair to say? I mean, I think I'm aware of it. And there are times where depending on the story or breaking news, I'm keeping an eye on more of it. Um, hmm. But yeah, with with regard to being ready to go on air and do interviews. I'm focused on documents, reading, primary source prep, sources, and then yes, also TV news. And what, what exactly would you say your media diet is? Like what, what, what kind of news sources are you reading when you're not sort of, I guess, reading you know, legal briefs and, and more primary source material like that for your show? 
Yeah, other than primary sources for media, I mean, I definitely look at Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, local, local coverage and local websites, particularly on stories that might just be bubbling up. So you're going to look at what is the local newspaper and the police report accounting for those kind of stories. Um, and then I look at long form stuff and I try to, you know, I try to look at certain books that I think will inform our work, even, even if they're not about that night's story. Um, and then I try to also detach as well so that I'm not so saturated that I lose a feel for the proportion of things because um, there are many experts on any given topic that will know far more than I would as an anchor who's essentially forced to be a generalist on many topics. So it's not always whether we have full expertise because we, we try to tap that in our booking, but also that I have some level of proportion. And that's also important with Trump because this president sometimes thrives on getting his opponents and his supporters to all talk about the same thing, which is something wild, or as the kids might say, something brazy that he said. <laughs> and my, my job sometimes proportionally is to look at that and go, oh yeah, I see why everyone's tweeting about that. And this isn't a Twitter account. This is a news show and I'm trying, and I'm not saying that we always pull it off, but we're trying to go to our viewers with the proportion and the wider set of what's important not just what's a big deal in the convo, if you will. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's something interesting about your show is that obviously your background, your MSNBC's chief legal analyst, uh, you're a lawyer. Uh, and I think a lot of people would expect your show, The Beat, to be, you know, really focused on that sort of angle of the news. Um, and like most cable news shows during the Russia investigation and during impeachment, uh, that was very much the focus of your show. Now there's, you know, you, I imagine you have to, you've had to broaden a lot of your coverage. Um, you know, there's not, you know, legal news is not filling up maybe an hour uh, like it used to be. Do you find that an, an easy transition uh, or would you prefer to be really focusing on legal news? It's a great question. We aim to be a one-stop shop for news politics, law, and culture. So obviously, like anything, you bring some of your life experience and expertise to it, just like you bring your personality to it, because you're on live every night. So people are going to get a feel for it, and it's got to be real. Uh, but we certainly are a news show first. I certainly see us as trying to compete with really talented, experienced people on the other channels who are news shows. Uh, and so I hope if legal is a bonus or a little icing, great. Uh, but no, it's not like we've never... We've never programmed to be just a quote legal show. And I think the numbers show broad interest in that we are a news show, just like the culture stuff has nothing to do with the law or the fact that I have to be a lawyer, but is a broad part of, I think, the conversations we're having um, that, you know, when I was in the Mueller mode, the biggest difference, again, this is in the weeds, but since your listeners probably are, you know, voracious, they love the weeds. All the, yeah, the details. Uh, as they know, it's, uh, there are plenty of folks who wear more than one hat. And so the difference to me with Mueller wasn't even so much our show, although we did a lot on it and we, we used our lens and we went to primary sources. We had more Trump officials than most hours because a lot of them were the ones that Mueller was interviewing. So if they're good enough for that, they're good enough for me. And we were thrilled to be one of the, the shows that recently got nominated for an Emmy for what was a joint interview with four different Mueller witnesses who all had worked for Trump or were Trump friendly in the case of Jerome Corsi. So... The difference, though, in the weeds is that was a period of time where I was running around to the Today Show and Morning Joe and way more other shows being the Mueller reporter. 
and also doing guest anchoring because the company at a news division level said we were going to have already help out with extra anchoring along with Brian and Nicole and others. That would have been the big difference to me, not just the four corners of the hour. And that's a reminder that I think everyone can relate to, whether you work in a newsroom or a TV studio or a barbershop, you know, or an auto mechanic, you're always going to be the role that is the widest value. So some days it's not about, oh, it's cool that we have an hour, but it's not about that because the company and maybe the viewers care more about, well, the Mueller news broke at X o'clock and that's where I saw you go do the work. Forget your show, you know? You did have a segment on uh, earlier this month that I thought did a really good job of drawing, sort of tying all that together. Uh, it was a pretty lengthy report uh, on how cell phone videos have brought a new wave of accountability uh, for police. You quoted Will Smith, who I think captured the phenomenon really in a really concise way when he said, racism isn't getting worse, it's just getting filmed. Could you expand a little bit more on the role that you think new technology like cell phone videos are playing in, the, in advancing awareness of police brutality and civil rights more broadly? Yeah, we documented how the democratization and lower costs of basically video, camera phones, et cetera, has had a profound effect on this wider uh, effort to document and change uh, the predilection for police brutality. So it's one of the many times where if you start out ideologically, you might not see the whole story because ideologically you might be either more protective or critical of the police, fine. There are reasons why we know people feel certain ways. But if you start out open-minded and just say, oh, that's interesting. Here's something that's not ideological, that's, you might call it accidental or arbitrary, but more cameras meant more evidence. If you're a journalist or a lawyer, you should wanna see factual evidence. And the evidence, in the case of Rodney King, uh, which was the first big one, of course, and then later cell phone cameras, has added to indictments, in some cases, convictions. So that's not a pro or anti-police statement. That's just drawing on what happened when more evidence was added. Um, and that is a reminder to us that sometimes it's not just what happens in politics or Washington or what people think of in a newsroom, which is all somewhat more traditional elite models of change, but also just what's out there. And that could be technology, it could be culture, could be what people decide they want to do in their own neighborhood, right? And that's a harder story to at least catch at first because, you, you know, you're kind of like, is this important or not? And we, we tease out those conversations. We try to do it factually. So that's what we looked at in that piece all the way up to the fact that when some of those videos were coming out under the pre previous administration, uh, the FBI director was criticizing them and saying that maybe they would discourage police from doing their jobs if there were too many videos. And then we later learned President Obama called in Director Comey to disagree with that. Now, that, again, is a whole rich history that's not about what you think about Trump or ideology, but just learning what it means when you have more evidence and what it means in this controversy about American policing. I think what was so fascinating to me about the report is that it, it really made clear how you know, at the time when, when Rodney King was beaten, it was incredibly rare to have this man walk out outside of his apartment with a handheld video camera uh, and start recording. And now that is, it's so widespread. Now everyone has an iPhone in their hands and is able to record this. Um, it, it, it marks such a, such a big advance in the way uh, the country feels about police brutality. And I think that's probably a, a big reason for why 
you see public opinion about police brutality changing so drastically, even since 2015. I agreed with the segment that the awareness has changed dramatically and it, and it probably has a large amount to do with this all being visual. Yeah, I think it's very visual. Appreciate you saying that. And it's a reminder that while it's understandable that people start with their mental maps, which might be political and what team do you, do you want to associate with? And it's no secret that the more news you watch, the more you're likely to have views about the news because you're not just watching like you don't care. <laughs> you're watching because you have thoughts about these people who are making decisions in whether it's government and politics or cities and policing. But those stories were not really about, I don't think, uh, who you're rooting for. They're much more about what the truth is. And policing, we know in American history and many countries, is inherently a controversial topic about power and politics. But let's be clear. If you heard that there was a bunch of doctors who, instead of doing what the job they're supposed to, were hurting people, you might be sentimentally pro-doctor because you like doctors or you think most of them are trying to help or you have doctors in your family. But if I show you a bunch of videos that are factual, this is what reporting is supposed to do, that they're actually doing something wrong and they shouldn't even be doctors, then you adjust your general sentiment, your warmth towards good doctors or nurses and adjust it for this based on the evidence, right? That sounds so straightforward. It's like, why am I even saying that out loud? But I think viewers and listeners can probably think about times where like even a statement about what the facts are becomes immediately politically contested instead of just going, well, wait a minute, what are the facts? Do you think cable news plays a, a, a role in sort of reinforcing the sort of partisan opinions about those issues. Um, you know, w when I think of sort of the, the culture war between uh, police, you know, being pro-police and being, you know, anti-police brutality, it seems like a lot of that is reinforced sometimes by uh, ideological news. Do you see that as an issue or, or, or something that you try and fight against on your show? Well, I, you know, not to, not to dodge you, but I really do just focus on the evidence and the facts as our North Star. So that's sort of what I was discussing previously. And I think that applies. So you could be aware of the fact that maybe things are more polarized, however you measure that. What are people coming to look at in that way? But then ultimately, we, we were discovering a pretty, uh, pretty tough looking arrest and in custody death that was ruled a homicide in uh, Rochester, where the mayor happens to be a Democrat. And so I'm telling my viewers, here's this thing that's going on. And the mayor happens to be a Democrat. And you can look at that mayor and make assumptions about what you think they would be for. And then you can also look at the video and say, this is happening here, just like it's happening in other places. So, yeah, am I aware that there are some people who are quick to put everything in the political team lens? Sure. But I don't think we spend a ton of time fixating on whether that's out there. I think we just try to focus on, on the facts and the evidence. And if something is about values, right like democracy equal rights those are values and they're not just a fact check but i might try to share with the audience yeah here's why human rights and democracy are positive values right because some stories are scandals because something bad happened and we could be transparent about that but that to me is totally separate from uh, avoiding partisanship which we try to do i'm i'm curious as to what kind of administration you think uh, a biden harris one would be when it comes to criminal justice do you see the, just, I mean, looking at the, the rhetoric from the campaign, their proposals in totality, do you see them as 
more progressive perhaps than the Obama administration was. I think there's a sense that they've made uh, some pretty, you know, strident leaps to the left in terms of criminal justice. Yeah, I think it's really for folks a question of whether you believe the current platform or the past conduct. I think Biden comes out of the 94 crime bill and being what at the time was considered center right on crime, just like Bill Clinton was and many other Democrats. And he said the times have changed and so has he. Harris is in this position of advocating reform, which is something I've interviewed her about more than once. I even interviewed her at a a forum at a former prison uh, with some questions from formerly incarcerated people and really dug into those issues. And so I've heard her in depth on it. She argues that, you know, it's time to do reforms, even though she was also um, a pretty strict prosecutor, uh, basically, quote unquote, tough on crime, uh, pursuing policies that put potentially parents in incarceration for their students, their children missing school or truancy. Um, she fought and appealed a case where someone was wrongfully convicted for a long time, which people thought, many people, critics thought it was excessive. But now she's also outlined more independent reviews of uh, police brutality incidents, which is not something she supported when she was a prosecutor. So both of them have an argument or a pitch that they've, they've evolved. And I would say for its time, the holder, uh, a, a DOJ, was pretty reformist and had a whole smart on crime agenda and drug courts and other specific things. So it's not even clear yet whether they, their history makes them more progressive than that. But as you point out correctly, certainly their pitch now in this season of the summer's protest has been to go much further in, in reform and taking on entrenched police power. Yeah, and I think that's a good point about, you know, when you look at Kamala Harris's past, I'm curious as to what voters are going to think about her rhetoric now. I, I remember when she she was on The Breakfast Club uh, not so long ago for an interview and was sort of joking about smoking weed when she was younger. And, you know, she obviously takes heat for that because she presided over a large amount of marijuana convictions when she was serving as a prosecutor. Now she comes out today and says that she would decriminalize the use of marijuana and uh, expunge convictions for uh, use of marijuana. You know, that's, that's pretty, that's, that's certainly more, uh, more of a step in the direction of criminal justice reform than the Obama administration was willing to take. But it does seem like that's where the Democratic Party is now. And I'm wondering if whether voters will believe that the ticket is with them on issues like that. Yeah, and I, I think it's a fair question. It's one we've explored with activists, and it's a reminder that just because someone uh, might be perceived to be rounding out the ticket doesn't mean that voters aren't going to do their own research and make up their own minds about it. And her record, obviously, is mixed. We've done some reporting on that, and I think you point out exactly part of the issues people feel like, oh, now you say you're for decriminalization or this and that, but that's not what you did when you had power. And I think that's a question that faces a lot of people. And again, in both parties, Mayor Bloomberg, when he had power, um, was found to be doing racial profiling. Then when he was running for president, he said he was against that. But of course, he did that when he had power for years. That's a reasonable thing for voters to factor in while you're also allowed to change your mind. Uh, and ditto for these candidates like Harris. So I think we're seeing an issue that's moved very fast. So it's understandable people are shifting. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important time to ask whether you take someone's pledges 
as the most important proof or also how they governed when they had the power. Do, do you think that the that President Trump's can, can hold up the First Step Act as a significant achievement on the issue when, when he's running against Biden and, and Kamala Harris? I think that that was fairly minor in the big scheme of things. I think it's certainly interesting that, that the wider politics or expectations have shifted enough that you have a Republican president touting uh, some leniency as he as he's touted, as he's pitching it in justice reform. He's not touting a supersizing the death penalty. He's touting first step, which is supposed to be alternatives to mass incarceration, just like the convention touted certain people that he'd let out of prison, like Alice Johnson. So that alone tells you how far this has moved. Having said that, um, the executive order on policing and the First Step Act were both fairly limited in what they do. So we covered them. It's not like, oh, if Trump's doing something, it doesn't fit into a certain narrative. No, we covered them. But I, I would call them, you know, a three, not a 10. You mentioned earlier that uh, you nabbed an Emmy nomination for a certain interview. I wanted to talk a little bit about that interview. It was uh, you, you basically had on four of Robert Mueller's witnesses who had previously served uh, either on the Trump campaign or, or in Trump's orbit. Could you tell us a little bit about how that interview came together um, and, you know, whether or not, you know, what news you made, what was the significance of it? Yeah, we were able to sit down four different witnesses that we knew were key to Mueller, including some that had spent many hours with him. It grew out of individual interviews we had done because that's a tough interview to get. Many of those people didn't do any public interviews in print or television. People like Don McGahn, uh, have really never been quoted extensively on the record, even though there may be little leaks. Um, and I would love, by the way, to have Mr. McGann on the show, so invites out there. But um, <laughs> having built rapport with some of them and shown, I think, that they felt this was a fair interview, they could get their side out, including well-known, you know, strong Trump advocates like Mr. Caputo, who's now in the administration, or Mr. Corsi, uh, who's a very well-known and controversial conservative. But they saw that this was a fair place to do one-on-one. So when we said, let's get them all together, which is even more of a question, because some lawyers might say, uh, uh, well, what, you know, how's this going to work? Um, we had the faith of the principals. So they were able to talk their lawyers, teams, publicists into it. And that was a lengthy interview that was one of the only places while the probe was open that we could contemporaneously compare different people's experiences, what they, what they went through behind closed doors with those Mueller investigators, what they were asked about to some degree, what the leads were. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you two big headlines out of it. One was good news for Donald Trump was it didn't seem like the final interviews and questions from Mueller's team were heading towards a collusion conspiracy indictment, but rather towards other things. That was good news at the time because nobody knew how, how it would end. And that was different from maybe talking to pundits. Uh, and then number two, in some bad news for Trump, it also suggested they were zeroing in on some of his longest serving aides for indictment. That was an interview where three of the four guests said that most of the questions were about Roger Stone more than any other person. And later, after that interview, Roger Stone was indeed indicted and was the last major figure indicted in the pro. So that's an example where you're deliberately trying to get more facts and primary sources to inform our, our knowledge of the story. Stone ultimately was convicted, which means that, you know, a jury did find that he broke the law. Trump famously commuted him. But all of that for news gathering was early days for us to learn that. 
Do you think that when, you know, when history settles, how do you think Robert Mueller's job as special counsel is going to be viewed? It's a great question because he was on a high and I think time has taken him down off that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, on professionalism and propriety, an A. On assertiveness with the evidence that he had, about everyone other than the president, also probably an A. I mean, he just did it by the book and he rolled up anyone that he had evidence of a crime for. And if it was outside of his Russia jurisdiction, he handed it off. We know he handed off Cohen to New York. We know that the report lists other anonymous cases that he handed off, all by the book. No self-aggrandizement. None of the problems that, that bedeviled Ken Starr. With regard to the president and that assertiveness, probably more like a B minus. Other prosecutors with smaller portfolios still compelled a grand jury interview and did other things. And I think with regard to both getting that interview and landing the report in a clear way, um, he clearly did not ultimately give clarity. And by that, I mean, if Trump didn't do enough wrong to merit an interview or more process, he should have said. And if Trump did enough wrong, and as many experts have said, the report was trying to say there were five incidents of obstruction, five plus, it should have said it clearly because you had all this time and you had all this resources and you have a long report. Tell the people in the Congress that. And I think it's striking, having been so close to it, that many fair-minded people were still fundamentally a little confused about what he was trying to say in the report. And I think a good legal investigation uh, does land with with more clarity. Last month, you launched Nevuary Radio on Apple Music. Each episode sort of breaks down iconic rap songs. Uh, I listened to the one called Dark Fantasy, which had a Kanye West focus. And obviously, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy has to be the best album of the 2010s. There you go. He, he's changed a bit since that album. Uh, and that's something you've covered on your show. I'm wondering what you make of his political shift and of his recent attempts to, you know, from a legal standpoint, of his bid to run for president. Yeah, I mean, I, thanks for the shout out. Uh, it's called Nebuary Radio. It's called Nebuary Radio because I say previously only available on the 35th of Nebuary in my mind. Uh, you can now listen to my, my playlist, which is just a fun sidening for the few people who may be interested. It's not all, all news viewers. And as for Kanye, I mean, you have someone who has been underestimated repeatedly. And whether you like him or not, there is the fact that he's success, you know, succeeded as a producer, then as a rapper, then in fashion, and has continued to branch out, uh, while also obviously publicly discussing his, his journey and mental health challenges. And is often been underestimated and still excelled. Um, and there's a lot of people online who criticize him even around music and fashion when he's proven himself to be a successful entrepreneur, which is a reminder that people aren't always necessarily what you might think if you box them. Uh, I don't think that his campaign has had any of the discipline or results that say he's had in fashion or music. So there's obviously a contrast there just before you even get into whether you like what he's saying, which many, many people don't for many uh, understandable reasons. He's just not very disciplined. He's not on the ballots. He's not 
you know, he's not tapping the level of people. If, if in music he's working with Jay-Z, Beyonce, and um, in fashion he's working with Virgil, right? Mm-hmm. These, are, these are giants. In politics, he has not worked with anyone like that. If anything, he's been criticized for the, uh, the questionable decision to have people from affiliated with the person he'd ostensibly be running against. So that's my, like, that's the facts of it. Uh, and I don't think we as a show have covered aspects related to this, but we haven't done many segments. Like, I don't think we've done a single segment about him actually running for president because he hasn't risen to the level that I would call it even worth covering in the news. Sure. Just to pick up on something you said, you know, you, you mentioned his discipline. I remember when back when uh, graduation came out and there was, uh, you know, there was some interview he did and he revealed that he mixed stronger 75 times to get a kick drum right because he didn't like the kick drum. And I think eventually brought in like Timbaland to like do, get a production credit on the track just to make sure that the kick drum sounded good. And that sort of discipline seems to have been missing from his music the past couple albums. But I have noticed that there's something, you know, there's something in the way that he used to produce music that was sort of obsessive. Um, and the attention to detail was really, really there. And now you, you know, whether it's his music sort of releasing albums that he's put out in, you know, that he made in a week to the new political campaign, it seems like there's been a shift from, you know, basically spending an obsessive amount of time producing this art to half-heartedly putting it out um, after like a frenzied week. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. And it's a reminder to everyone if even when you can be really good at something, there's no such thing for most people as just automatically staying good without effort and commitment. And I think certainly the case that he, uh, in his verses, as you mentioned, and sonically, some of that for those who've been listening doesn't feel like it's at the same level. Um, and then you have the fact that he's stretched between all these different things, you know. Is he uh, is he a guest for uh, for the beat? Uh, definitely think he'd be an interesting person to interview. I mean, my some of my dream guests are like Chief Justice Roberts and <laughs> Bob Mueller, but also sure. Jay, also Jay Z, Beyonce, you know, Cardi B, Kanye. Sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look out for coverage of my conversation with Ari Melber on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.